Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Each week, we are exploring a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application, and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. And we also have some devotional interactive questions for each podcast, ideal for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. So we welcome you once again to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Today we're going to finish our short series from Philippians 4, 4 through 9. By looking at verses 8 and 9 today, this passage uh, overall has addressed finding freedom from an anxious spirit. Today we shall see that it also addresses our thoughts as well. So as we review a little bit, we recall from verse 1, Paul was writing to encourage these believers because he was aware of a little disunity there. And so he, he called them to stand fast in the Lord, as well as be of the same mind in verse 1 and 2. And then he asked them to help one another to labor together for the higher purpose and the goal of the gospel. So with that kind of call to unity, he gave the first of what is actually going to be seven imperatives. We've looked at five so far. Um, in verse 4, there's two of them right away. They're repeated for emphasis. He says, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice, to rejoice. And the basis for that is to rejoice in the Lord, which was a call to mind then of the excellence of God, about who he is and his ways, his words, um, his attributes, and then also our relationship with him by way of thinking in the Lord and that positional truth and union with him. Now, he went on to say, because the Lord is near, he's at hand, and as we do rejoice in him, obviously he's unchanging so we can do so always, then the Lord will display gentleness through us, through us horizontally to all people in our sphere. We are called to cooperate, to let him do that. And that was the third imperative, to let this gentleness be observed. And that goes a long way toward any disunity as well. And then we are told to be anxious for nothing, ever, in verse 6, which taken incorrectly will lead us into a tailspin of defeat and failure as we try so hard to not be anxious because we've been told it's a sin. But we saw last time that it is not a sin. And also, we are not the source of any remedy for anxieties anyway. Uh, the word used for anxiety, it's a term that is used in the New Testament both positively and negatively about our cares or worries. That and the fact that understanding anxiety to be a sin in a black-and-white rigid interpretation way opens the door to this over-analytical corkscrewing of ourselves into the ground as well as heavy doses of guilt and shame. Instead, we saw that anxiety is an emotion, and an emotion is a physical reaction the human body has in various circumstances. Emotions in and of themselves are not sin. Like, be angry and sin not, the Bible says in Ephesians. Anger is an emotion, and yet we can have anger in that verse without sin. So, yes, we can allow our emotions to run the show and allow them to be in the driver's seat, as we say. And as we operate out of our emotions unchecked, there will be sin. It turns into sin. Thoughts first and then deeds. 
But the presence of emotion in and of itself is not sin. Emotions are part of our creation design. God made us this way, and emotions are a gift from God. You know, oftentimes the church has not been very good, in general I'm speaking, of uh, uh, talking about emotions. Many of us may feel bad about our feelings, as if good Christians should not really feel a whole lot of anything. And if we do, the feelings are always under strict control, managed. Or we may think that we should feel bad about feeling bad. Oh, I feel bad because I feel bad. If we have bad feelings, we're in the wrong. And we need to feel bad about those bad feelings and then quickly confess them to God for a jump back into the good category. And then others may ridicule feelings by way of saying they are mostly feminine and women are so prone to be run by their feelings, so basically insulting half the church. And all of these things just instill more guilt and shame about something that God gave each of us as part of his wise design. Feelings, think of them like the warning lights on your car dash. They indicate that something's going on. They're telling you, hey, connect. Now, we would never say that you drive your car so much better because you're able to cover all those lights on the dash and ignore them. When a warning light comes on, it gets our attention. It prompts us to action. So with the car, you'll connect with your mechanic and have him look at it and talk about it and have that issue resolved. With the Lord, we connect with him because we have these feelings that drive us to him and with honest prayer and consulting of him in the matter. Now, Add the fact then, or excuse me, and uh, uh, the emotion of anxiety rather, is it always a sin? Well, let's consider two Old Testament passages on this before we move on into Philippians. The first one is in Psalm 39, 139, verse 23 and 24. David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, this word anxiety comes up two times in the Old Testament, at least in the New King James Version. And this first one is here in Psalm 139. Know my anxieties. Here's a sincere prayer of connection as David is praying and pouring out his heart to God. And he says, make it clear like, that I'm not like my enemies. In verse 1, he says, you have searched me and known me. So he knows this is true of God. And at the very end of the prayer, he starts this way. Now he ends the psalm this way. He repeats this in a prayer and a request. David doesn't always know himself clearly, as you and I don't always know. And so we see in his request, there's humility. Search me and know me and show me. And there's dependence and a desire for this close relationship. There's honesty in this heart. And he says, and know my anxieties. The word just means troubled thoughts. So could it be that David, clearly in an intimate moment of fellowship and prayer, might have anxieties? Yes, that's what he's saying. He might search me. But yet as he's praying and doing this, how can that be sin? In fact, the very words that David is uttering are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because they become scripture inspired. And so in that state of of fellowship and, and, and enjoyment of relating to the Lord, he says, search me even if there's anxieties. The second time this is used in the Old Testament is also by David in Psalm 94 and verse 19. And there he says, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comfort delights my soul. 
So I don't want to have to take time on that, but in verse 17, 18, and 19 is the context. And, and he is, again, under distress. He's being chased by enemies. And he acknowledges in verse 17 a very real fact of danger. In verse 18, he even admits there's fear along with this danger. But here in verse 19, he talks about how the fear of this danger has become a consuming anxiety. He has got anxious thoughts. There's, he's on the run and there's fear. And what is the solution? It's God's comfort. He says, your comforts delight my soul. And that word is the idea of his words of comfort are the truth and the remedy that delights his soul and brings peace. As we very, uh, very much compare this to Philippians 4, where we go back to now. In chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, to be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So he says, be anxious for nothing. And we can know, just like rejoice always, it's possible for us to do that as we have our thinking in the Lord. We can also be anxious for nothing. It's possible. We can breathe in. We can be calmed here. No spiral of guilt and shame because we have some anxiety present. Now in everything, no detail too small, we can, by way of praise and specific requests, we can have them sent up to God because we can, we have access, he, he cares and he hears us. And with that thankful spirit right in the middle of this distressing circumstance, we know we're not alone. And we're not called upon to have it all together, to be emotionally numb, but because we are his and he wants us and he likes us and he wants to hear from us and he's worthy of our praises and our thanksgiving. And so now we see the peace of God, the supernatural help comes and floods in from God, this supernatural, not of us, it is sourced in him and this comes and, and, and guards our hearts and minds has the ability to, uh, it's not, again, it's not up to us and our ability to hold any emotions or our ability to spout pious quips and pious ways or our ability to fake it until we make it. No, it's not in our ability at all. It's anchored in his peace and it's from him. And it overwhelms us, this peace of his. It'll guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The overwhelming assurance that he's got this and he is worthy and you can trust him. And no matter the outcome, you will still be his. And no matter the outcome, you will still be with the Holy Spirit. And you will still have a resurrection and eternity to look forward to. And you will still be a child of God. And you will still be a citizen of heaven. And you will still be righteous and declared righteous in him. You will still be a joint heir with him. No matter what the outcome, you will still be inseparable from the love of God in Christ. And you will still have access to the throne of God. And though you may not be able to reason it all out or think logically through our, your anxiety, because anxiety is irrational almost by definition, I don't have to have it all figured out. I, I can have the peace of God flooding my heart that is better than having all knowledge, as the verse says. It surpasses all rational explanation, explanations and ducks in a row thinking. It's way better, like out of this world better. So we can just know this peace of God floods us, even though we don't know the outcome of things. But all these things remain the same. So now we go on in verses 8 and 9, where Paul, Paul goes on to say now, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. 
The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. So once God has granted us his amazing peace, we don't want to promptly depart from it or or, or go astray from it. So from verse uh, 7, where the peace is guarding our hearts, we go to verse 8. And here we see uh, that he is saying to us that though we have this guarding action of the peace of Christ, uh, this, this guarding action of peace is in Christ Jesus. And though you and I, if you're saved, we're always positionally in Christ. Mentally, though, practically, I can be distracted away from appreciating my position. I can become dull. I can be distracted away to fulfill some selfish pursuits. Or most common, I can be distracted away when I'm given a diet of having to keep myself clean through repetitive self-analysis and fulfilling subtle horizontal expectations and community standards. And through trying to stay out of God's woodshed, I can get distracted away from that peace. And the peace of God operates in Christ Jesus. And though I am in Christ Jesus, in a practical way, I'm functioning as if I'm outside of this position. I've forgotten things. I've been distracted away. And therefore, I'm moving away from this peace, and anxiety then will increase, and gentleness will decrease, and rejoicing will decrease, and disunity will increase as we just walk back up our passage toward verse 1. And so Paul gives the admonition, which is our sixth imperative now in verse 8, to meditate on certain types of things. And he uses six predicate adjectives which are modifying. In other words, what kind of things? Well, things that are true. That means that which is in accordance with fact, like theology and theological biblical truth. And it also implies, talking about all of these things, they also can be found uh, even beyond the biblical realm in terms of the world we live in, like scientific truth. We know that there's observable, repeatable things. uh, And so there's things that are true, that are in accordance with reality and fact. Things that are noble, uh, things that are, that word means honorable or worthy of respect, something worthy of respect. Obviously, again, everything theological and of the Lord, but even out beyond that, worthy causes, even worthy examples of people, people, maybe biblical characters that are great examples and encourage us, or historical figures that uh, left a, a legacy behind. Uh, people that are just, or things rather that are just, which means just fair, or equitable, what is right. In Jesus, the unjust are made just, we read. And so God wants us to be just. In fact, it mirrors God. Uh, that's what he's like. And he even uh, encourages us to be fair and to be equitable in society. That reflects the heart of God. Things that are pure, which means blameless or innocent. You know, James 3.17 says that the wisdom that is from above is pure. Things that are lovely, that word means causing pleasure or delight. It would include, obviously, uh, the pleasures of the Lord that are evermore, Psalm 1611, and the spiritual realm, but also all sorts of artistic expressions, or good food, or married sex, or anything like that. It's lovely on earth, and even a good report. Things that are well-spoken, things that are praiseworthy. And then there's two noun phrases, if there be any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy. And virtue is the Greek word arete. It's a word that very prominent in Greek culture for, for, again, meaning virtue or excellent, things that are praiseworthy, an object of praise. And all of them are introduced with the, or the first six, rather, are introduced with the, uh, the Greek word hosa, which is everything, meaning, you know, if there is anything or if there be any. It really carries the idea of everything that is lovely or everything that is noble or if there's everything that is just. So it's an open-ended list. 
In fact, if it meets one of those points, then whatever that item is would qualify for being something to think upon. And so we see the it's an imperative, and it's think on these things. The word Greek is logedzomai, and it's in the middle voice, which means that as you do this, you, the subject, are personally involved with the results that come with the action. In other words, you're benefited in a personal way as we choose to think on these things. Give careful matter is what the word means. To ponder and let your mind dwell on. So as he encourages us to think on these things, make a few applications. One, we get to choose what we dwell on. We choose what we get to dwell on in our mind. In fact, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, a little earlier in the book, Paul said he prayed for these Philippians in verse 9 and 10 that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, and that you may approve the things that are excellent. And there's a choice there. And you recognize something that's excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. You recognize things that are worth more. Literally, things that are excellent means something that is superior or worth more. And that reminds us of Philippians 4, verse 7, about the peace of God, which surpasses its superior and its better than all our rational knowledge. And Paul prayed that I pray that you would learn to understand or discern things just like that. You see, we have true freedom here, freedom of thought, freedom of conscious thought. And that can't be taken away from you. So what do you choose to dwell on? We have to ask, what am I choosing to dwell on and why? You know, it's your choice and it's your call. There is no possibility for us being a victim here or having some sort of innate inability here. Nope, we can choose. We have that freedom no matter who you are, and we have to ask, what will it be? You know, Paul's already encouraged us in verse 4 to rejoice, and to rejoice, we have to rejoice in the Lord. And there is some choice of thoughts he's already refreshed us with there, things that are excellent, things that are better, the things of what God is always. And the result is this excellent peace will invade our hearts, and we can enjoy that. So we can choose what we dwell on. We choose what we think and dwell on. Secondly, we could say that we should be able to praise God for the things that we are dwelling on. If we're dwelling on something, then hopefully we should be able to praise God for that. That's a nice way of seeing, are we dwelling on things that are all of those lists above? I mean, because if we can't praise God while we're dwelling on what we're dwelling on, then we're soon obviously going to lose or have lost the peace that God has given us in that practical way. Now, often we can't maybe praise God for the things we're dwelling on because we're dwelling on things that make us angry or we have resentfulness inside. We're bitter. And those thoughts grip us and we can't then be praiseworthy or we can't really pray that that person, can we pray that that person that we're bugged with could have success? Would we pray for the success of the other person? Oh, man, that's really hard if we're filled with resentment. But why wouldn't you? Why can't we pray for that person? Well, they don't deserve it. And then we get right into the area of grace because, wow, that's language we should understand. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's favor. I don't deserve God's kindness. I've been forgiven repeatedly for the same sins even. If I don't deserve it and if I'm treated this way and if God loves me, he wants me to extend that horizontally outward. That's why Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Even as God and Christ forgave you. See, it starts there. 
You've been forgiven, and you've been loved, and, forg- and you, God has, has done all of this for you. And he wants to take that, that bitterness away if we let him have it, and he'll replace it with love and forgiveness. And we can do that if we're thinking about grace and how we stand before the Lord and how he treats us instead of thinking about that other person. So can you praise God for the things you're dwelling on? And if you're having a hard time getting beyond things that we're dwelling on and we can't praise God, then may you start thinking in terms of grace and the forgiveness of God toward you and Christ. And perhaps the Spirit of God can start dislodging some of that anger. Thirdly, uh, application. So this means then we can never have a wrong thought. Is that how we want to apply this? You must be thinking on these things. Well, if we take it that way, it's just more pressure, more ways to turn aside from grace and get the guilt and the shame going. I must always think on good things. I must always think and take in holy things. I need to always be exposed to pure things. Oh no. Was that last conversation entirely pure? Was that pop song I listened to totally holy? Was that movie noble? Was that TV news show really truthful? Is that blog I like to follow of good report? Is my Pinterest page entirely virtuous? And slowly panic seeps in and we're constantly evaluating and there's little pangs of guilt and pressure and we hope no one sees if it was wrong and well. And then we let's, let's add to this the fact that God knows all your thoughts, every single one. And how many thoughts are there? Well, scientists believe somewhere in the average of 50,000 thoughts for a person every single day. In one year, that's over 18 million thoughts. I don't know how you measure that. You know, take it for what it's worth. But there's a lot of them. And now we're to think on only things that are noble and pure and right and good all the time. <gasps> So we have to get to it, 50,000 a day. Don't blow it. And you know, you can say bye-bye to grace. It's all scrubbed out when we approach it that way. But does this passage specifically address intake, like your music or entertainment or whatnot? How is what, well, I mean, who determines what is actually really kosher? Anyway, you know, you know, you read a novel? You spent 30 hours reading a novel? Holy smokes, I mean, how worthless is that? Probably gave you some bad thoughts. You watched a sports event. You spent three hours. What a worthless, unproductive time. And that's just going to give you worldly thoughts. Who determines that? Well, who, you went to a movie? Oh, downhill you go. Waste of time and bad thoughts city. And you went on vacation. Why? What kind of thoughts there? I mean, we could unravel and just, oh. And then what we could do to each other? Oh, my. So what does failing to apply this verse, what would it look like? Would it look like I'm failing to apply this verse, which means I'm listening to bad music or watching unapproved things or reading questionable literature or attending wrong places? Nope. What would it look like? It looks like thinking the wrong kind of thoughts. Why? It, it, it means that I'm thinking things that are not true and not noble and not just and not of good report. And from the context, what thoughts are immediately in view? Two verses back, anxiety and anxious thoughts. Even earlier, things that are disunity thoughts so would you meditate on things um you could be in other words you could be meditate on things that are false as well 
things from the enemy. You have thoughts that have brought about anxiety, uh, and that could be a lot of different reasons provoking that. You also could just have a wrong view that the enemy is really wanting to promote in your thinking. You have a wrong identification. You don't see yourself as in Christ. You just see yourself as a negative Joe and a bad sinner and a loser, and you perennially can't get anything right, and you have so much negative self-talk, which is negative thoughts, and you're all wrapped up in your failings, and, oh, I can't believe, I don't know if God really loves me, and I, he, I think he's hiding from me, and is, well, what does the Word of God say? Does the God Word of God say he doesn't love you? Well, no, but that's how I feel, and so these thoughts are dominating me, and I have negative emotion, and my thoughts are running away with me. Maybe someone has sinned against you, and you think about it over and over. It cycles in your mind. It repeats. You play the video. You hit play, and you hear it, and you watch it, and you see it in living color, every word, and it's, oh, it's into your thoughts, and it loops over and over and cycles through. Or maybe you just have thoughts of greed or lust or wrong kind of thoughts that are just flowing freely and they're demanding action. And Paul is saying, let's put some other things into the playback loop of your minds, like looking onto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, like beholding what manner of love that God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Like remembering the very nature and the definition of grace, undeserved kindness and goodness from God. These thoughts Boy, there can be refreshing. And thoughts like not no, like knowing you're not under law but under grace. And you can think then. And as you have these thoughts, the fourth point would be that you want to think actively. You want to be actively engaged and concentrating and thinking and turning over stones and pondering. That's what the word meditate means. To stir up our minds toward the love of God and his goodness and his remedies. And stir up our thoughts to a place of worship and reverence and making requests unto him because he loves you unconditionally. And so we meditate on these thoughts. We meditate on the Lord with an active, engaged participation thinking. And we don't let meditate on just to learn doctrine or theology. That's not what this, that's good, but that's not what this word is referring to. This is a personal and relational pondering and, and thinking through. <clears throat> and that means it's going to involve response. The response of faith as, you, as it engages the heart with these thoughts of who God is and what he's done. And, and when there's responses of faith, then the peace of God is there too. Now, we know a bottom line principle of life. We're going to see it here as we shift to verse 9, that what we do, our actions stem from what we believe. Belief and then actions, thinking and then doing. Now, verse 9, that's exactly what we see. We see our seventh and last imperative. Paul says, the things that you have learned, received, and heard and seen in him do. That means practice. Now we're into action. And the things that were learned, the things that he taught them, the things that were received, they received what was taught. That's what those words literally mean. The things that you heard, probably hearing here means for sure with comprehension, but it's probably about Paul's character. And the things that you saw, actually a real experience what, about Paul and what he's like. So what he said and taught and what he's like. Now, you've seen that now do with an example like that. Now, the first two relate to the teachings of Paul. The second two refer to what they observed concerning him. And all of it was exemplified in me, these things that you saw in me. And so these thoughts are aided now by this teaching and example of Paul. And what is the result? The phrase ends, the passage ends with, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace is obviously referring us back to verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts. And it will be with you. This is a way of comforting and encouraging by way of a closing, as Paul's done this before in Romans 15, 33, the God of peace be with you all. 
Or Romans 16, 20, the God of peace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you, and so forth. But it's also, he's saying he will be with you as well. We could think of it in that personal, practical way that we talked about earlier, the peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You are in him positionally forever, so it's all good 24-7 for eternity. But like we said, you can drift practically away from appreciating and enjoying that spiritual position. Wrong thoughts is a big way that this happens because it's actually a lack of faith. You're believing things that are not true. You're stumbling over things that are not uh, noble and just, etc. We're forgetting important spiritual realities when that happens. And the good news is this can be remedied immediately by choosing what you dwell on in your thoughts. And you take your thoughts back and you orient them again to the things of the grace of God. And you remind yourself again on the love of God that he has toward you. We can sing from that old hymn, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. So as we finish, just think, what better way to trigger our thoughts than by refreshing our mind on that simple gospel message. For The gospel, as you know, means good news. It's from God to all of us. And the gospel is anchored in the love of God, which he was so motivated by to give us his only son. And that love was clearly demonstrated. As Romans 5.8 reminds us, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's a fact. God has demonstrated his love toward us. There it is. Who are we? While we were still sinners, he demonstrated it to us while we're in that fallen state, separated from him because of our sin. And how was it demonstrated? Christ died for us, on our behalf, in our place, as a substitute. The cross says that, uh, the Bible will then say that the cross is essentially God's pulpit, preaching his love for all. At Calvary, he's preaching his love. Say that you um, were willing to die for uh, your loved one, maybe a girlfriend or your husband or mother, someone who is good. And so you do this. This is a great act, a noble act of sacrifice. You died and they lived. But what's going to happen to you eventually? Eventually, you too will what? Die. Because we're all born in Adam and we're all born in sin and we're all going to die physically. Well, here's Jesus Christ. He left heaven, a holy place, a perfect place. He came to this fallen earth with all of its sin and degradation, and he came to die. And he personally died for you and me, demonstrating God's love for us all. And on that cross, he took your sin and your guilt and shame, and he put it on himself. And God punished him as if it was you, as he became sin for us. And then he died, and he suffered spiritual separation from God the Father and the Son. There was a death. And there was a relational separation. And he experienced something that he never would have experienced otherwise. Never was that on his calendar. Never was that ahead in his future. And that death was agonizing. The physical suffering that we poured upon him as humans, he didn't say a word. But the spiritual separation, when that came upon him, he cried out in significant agony. Because you see, he died for us. It's far greater than if you were to die for a loved one because you're going to die anyway. He took on a death that he never would have experienced. And he did that for you and for me. And he did that because he loves us. And then he was buried and three days later we know he arose. He's alive. He's victorious. He has defeated sin and he's offering life. And that gift of life is free to you and to me. And it's by faith in Christ. We can't earn it. 
We can't do anything to buy it. He paid for it with his life. In fact, it's an insult to try and buy it or offer works in exchange for it. And that's why this is good news. You can have eternal life right now by faith. In fact, 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And these things I have written to you, the Bible says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have right now eternal life. God has given us this life. It's free. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. But you can know you have it, and you can know for sure. And I ask you, do you know? Because that's where the good news starts. It's knowing that you have been saved and cleansed and given life by a Savior who loves you, where that love was demonstrated at Calvary, where he died for you, and now he's risen and offering life. So friends, believe on him now. Why wait? There's nothing left to do but trust what has already been done. You know, if you were the only person on the earth who had sinned, he would still come for you. That's how much he loves us. And if you have believed, may you put these kinds of thoughts, the gospel truth, other good news thoughts, other things that are true of God into the loop of our thinking, thoughts of his love and his eternal life and his grace and his assurance. And may peace be entering in. Shall we pray? Father, I pray for all listening that they would indeed have this life. It's so simple, so free in light of what Christ has done, and it's available. I trust you can convince them of your love and persuade them and that they could see and know that they have this life for sure because you promised it and you're worthy of your promise, and it's based on just faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So I trust they even now would just put their faith in you. Just in the quietness of their heart, they would believe. And for those who have life, we trust and pray, Father, that we also would allow this peace to come in and to guard our hearts and minds. It's so much better than all logical understanding. So we could learn to rejoice and even make our requests known to you and then learn to meditate on these things, to allow your truth to saturate our hearts and minds and to see you in the world around us. So we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. May I remind you of, we have questions that accompany each podcast that are ideal for group discussions. Just email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com. Until next time, remember where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.